0: You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skabitsky. This week, we welcome Dr. Denise Ross Page and Dr. Douglas Greer to the podcast to talk about the importance of supporting the literacy development of children with autism. Reading comprehension is a critical building block for effective early literacy development. Many students with autism spectrum disorder demonstrate difficulties in reading comprehension. Our guests today will share their experience and expertise in the behavioral components of literacy skills, the strategic science of teaching, and current research about literacy. Welcome to the podcast. So um, Dr. Uh, Ross Page, when you're looking at comprehension, How many steps do you see through that process? Because I've seen kids be able to decode or that have very good abilities of patterning that can kind of put words together, but maybe never know the meaning of what they're reading, yet they're very good at just getting the words out.
1: I agree with Doug that it's it's listeners on speaker, speakers on listener behavior, right? Where they're speaking and they're listening to themselves. Um, But I do think that there are lots of steps between comprehension and early reading that help facilitate comprehension later. And if those steps are skipped, you see deficit, you see children who you know, may not read ha- gain comprehension as easily. Um, and so I work with older children a lot. And one of the things we know is that if they are missing um, parts of words, like if they're missing, they look at the word, um, I don't know, to be basic with this, the word cat, and mm-hmm. they can't or the word catastrophe, right? And they can't segment it and they can't blend it and they aren't, don't have the um, sound letter correspondence and they can't. So when you do that, you have children who just don't comprehend. And when we go back and we teach them, I had a student who did a dissertation on this, we went back and we taught them uh, to break up the words and to read the parts of the word. And also a student who did it with fluency, when she taught them to do it fluently, their comprehension um, emerged without us having to do a lot of direct instruction. And I think the way comprehension is measured a lot um, is also a form of stimulus control. So i teaching students how to respond to you know, what's the main idea, those types of things. And it's being able to respond to that type of question.
0: So Dr. Greer, to pick up on that, is is that fluency part, the ability to string numerous words together and say it out loud, is that that auditory concept? I'll use the cat example. But say I wanted cat uh, eats fish. Is that each one of those, I say them slowly, now I'm thinking of them as being distinct items, not a full phrase. But I put them fast together, say it out loud, now it has meaning as a sentence. That's that auditory piece and pairing fluency together.
2: For example, my mentor was a guy named B.F. Skinner. And when he wrote the book, he pointed out that we textually respond. We don't decode anything. If we looked at a word and it said cow, and we were, at that, we were spy and that said, look out for the plane, that would be a decoding, right? It would be changing the meaning of that word. So when a kid looks at something in textual response, it's very important. There are many pieces of comprehension. One of them is you have to be able to text or respond at 90 words a minute, you know, on average, in order to make sense out of what you hear another person say, as well as hearing yourself, so that's one piece. Listening to yourself when you talk is another piece. Having enough names of things, a big enough vocabulary to use, what what we call a tact. When you see something and you say it. You actually see it when it's not present, which is something else. So having that are all pieces. But there's also another piece that we've learned um, and that has to do with uh, what we call relational frames and a strong stimulus control for learning the names of things from exposure alone, which we call incidental bidirectional naming, which is what for years, people will puzzle, how could kids do that? How do they run, learn all these thousands of words? Well, we have some really good answers about that now. So let's say a kid can can go to school with a huge vocabulary and another kid goes to school with a very small vocabulary. That's going to affect not only what they can do in that classroom, but it's gonna affect how fast they can learn from exposure from the teacher. Most teachers don't know about strategic science of teaching. So most of the time, teachers think teaching is telling and showing. And when you tell and show, the degree of the stimulus control for incidental bidirectional naming will determine how much that kid will get from the teacher telling and showing. Now, let's take that over to reading, where read the book replaces the teacher. So how many times does this kid have to read this passage to acquire new vocabulary? And they acquire it first if somebody asks you a multiple-choice question. They can get it right, but they can't tell you. And as that stimulus control senten- strengthens, they can tell you which is why kids in university, when they take essay exams, they perform more poorer, extremely much worse than they do if they take a multiple choice exam. And before we teach kids to even read, the first thing we do is we make looking at books more reinforcing than playing with toys in free time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And all of that, I mean, it seems like it's this constant progression. And even the way that you all have talked about the teaching of these skills is that it's, it's constantly moving kind of to more and more complex language structures. And, and more and more independence. Exactly. More and more independent learning. Which means that the, the people who are applying this need to be well attuned to to be able to access that material, to be able to help guide somebody through the process. And um, Denise, you had, you had mentioned that you know you do work or have done a lot of research with uh, adolescents or older students, mm-hmm. that I, when I think of reading comprehension is that when you're building the blocks, that's pretty, that's pretty rote. There's a system to be able to do that. And if you're doing it the way that, uh, that Doug had described, you should be able to get a very strong foundation mm-hmm. what happens when we get to more concept formation and having to look at what's being said in the in the in the written word and contrive something some meaning out of it that might not be derivative is there a step to that or is that something we need to look further into to be able to build reasoning behind it
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it goes back to one of the questions you sent us was, um, what's the difference between learning to read and reading to learn? Like reading, you know, learning to read and then reading to learn. And the difference is kind of what you just described, that when you're learning to read, you are um, mastering those um, foundational repertoires that Doug was discussing. And that there is a sequence to those, right? But at some point, and typically in schools, it's around the third grade, but I think it happens even earlier than that. Um, children are no longer being taught to read those using those foundational repertoires. Instead, they're expected to learn from reading, and that continues on through really the rest of your life. Right? That, that nobody's teaching you those things. Um, and so I think that I think a couple of things. One is we tend to think of comprehension as this like something you teach or something that's like this complex repertoire is, but it really is composed of lots of smaller repertoires. Lots of that if that if we don't gain those this more complex repertoire doesn't emerge. One of the things I remember hearing um, you know, when you think about math, I was at, someone talking about complex math and how if you have to do complex math, it really is composed of all these other smaller repertoires that you needed to learn. And I think comprehension is that too. So when we see issues with things like concept formation with older students, we really have to go back and see where are they missing um, some of those earlier repertoires and teach them. Um, but once you get to that place where children can learn those, or they require those repertoires that sh- where it should emerge, you should be able to just teach them directly, particularly if they have, like Doug was saying, they have, you know, naming, they have observational learning, you should be able to teach them. But I think when he talked about um, relational frames, I think that when you get, it, when students are learning new concepts and more complex comprehension, that's where we get into making sure that we're connecting things that don't always seem to be connected to each other using relational frames. And so, um, to Me, those are my that those are kind of how we would approach it with older students. What are they missing that's stopping them from gaining this? And typically, it's some repertoire like motivation, fluency, um, something in, in their phonics. Um, they call it word study with older students, um, mm-hmm. and other areas. And then, if, we, if we've taught them those, we now go into teaching them um, comprehension concepts, and we can do that directly, or we can start doing it, like you said, with derived relations. They're emitting responses that we haven't talked
0: yeah. No. And 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 I think you both hit on it uh, a couple times. Is that you have to find a way for all of this to have value. It's for the person who's who is learning these skills. It's got to have something in it that is motivating to them, or has some form of reinforcement for them to actually want to be able to develop access and continue to move through the material because it's not easy. My um, my question, and and Doug, you've you've done the research which probably indicates that you know that this is something that needs to be worked on. What happens if, if it's not? Literacy is, is extremely important across all walks of life, is being able to navigate professional worlds, navigate uh, relationships, navigate anything around you, is that you have to have some form of literacy, whether that is reading literacy, social literacy, and you have to have literacy. It's what happens when we don't empower people young enough to develop these skills so that they can start to engage in the community
2: around them. Have you seen some of the downfall of that? Yeah, they end up being at the bottom of society whether it's crime or poverty, all of those things are driven by literacy, degree of literacy and it's not only I also think of literacy and mathematics and science, particularly mathematics. Mathematics is just another kind of language, another verbal behavior. Uh, But it's just like speaking and listening is key to becoming part of the community, a larger community. You can communicate in verbal behavior without speaking or listening by sign language and visual means. That allows you to learn many more things faster, which is why, for example, deaf kids who don't get cochlear implants and who are part of a very good community uh, communicate, have verbal behavior composed of sign language. And uh, that, that's a very rich piece of verbal behavior or communication. We all use it, but it has limitations when it comes to reading. And so you would find that children in in that community have difficulty developing comprehension beyond the sixth grade.
0: Talking through that, I mean you made you made the the comment that you know this is something that we all we all know or that we all should know that being able to kind of be reinforced by saying something out loud and having it have meaning or the anticipation of meaning or something to that effect should be common knowledge. Unfortunately, is that as we try and guide families, as we guide educators, not everybody understands that piece to it. And they get a little bit more robotic in the teaching methodologies rather than realizing that, you know, give them a voice, make it so that saying it out loud or being able to envision it and hear it becomes the reinforcer and keeps them motivated and then use the exposure to so many different things to be able to build a repertoire and and use those two in conjunction. Why hasn't this been the norm for teaching for so long? Is that I I have been in numerous special ed classrooms. That's not what, is it harder to be able to deliver it this way? Is it more individualized? What are the barriers that are keeping us from saying "This, this is the best way to do it? We should be applying this to a variety, not just autistics or neurodiverse individuals, but to a lot of people who have literary skill deficits, we should be applying this science. Why isn't it more mainstream in our education systems right now?
2: Sometimes I think parents understand with a kid likes to read, he's gonna learn a lot, Mm -hmm. right? So, they, we have to shift the reinforcer from the prosthetic reinforcers that we use, including praise, which is a prosthetic reinforcer too. Meaning, this is what we use. and Skinner called it educational reinforcer. Mm-hmm. We we have to shift to those other reinforcers. It, we have not focused, both in schools, and in a lot of ABA therapy, we have not focused on changing reinforcers. We focus on using a common reinforcer to develop performance, but it's not learned because you haven't learned a new operant.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: No, and that makes a lot of sense. And and, and Denise, I mean, you've spoken about uh, the, the, the need to be able to derive meaning using relational frame theory, utilizing these techniques. What would be the first step you'd be suggesting to an ABA practitioner or to somebody who who focuses on reading comprehension it, to be able to make sure that they're involving this in their curriculum? Um, what what should they be looking at to be able to say, am I doing this right? Am I utilizing these techniques appropriately?
1: Tag with Doug on this one because I think he's more immersed in an autism community and doing the work with children with autism. Um, but I do think that... Um, you know, I wrote down earlier that we think, so when they measure reading we measure comprehension, right? They often do, they measure what they think is comprehension at least or what they're calling comprehension. But as I said earlier, that's not always the level at which the, the issue is at. Um, and so you might have it in children with autism sometimes demonstrate what we might consider difficulties with comprehension. And so that's why we call it that. When in fact, the issue might be like Doug was saying earlier um, issues with verbal developmental cusp. So do they have naming in their repertoire, right? Can they learn from observational learning? in um, multiple exemplar instruction builds an instructional history. And so that's where you come into, you know, connecting with relational frames. And so I think thinking about backing into the problem, not tackling comprehension, because you hear that all the time, the child's having trouble with comprehension, but assessing if they're missing earlier verbal developmental cuts that you need To comprehension to emerge or to emerge more rapidly, Um, and so I would start there. And obviously, I mean, we'll talk about our book in a little bit. But we start with things like a positive classroom for children first, right? And then moving into operationalizing what your 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 objective is, and then from there going on and um, and just ensuring that they have these early repertoires, which we'll talk about. But I think. I don't know that I think comprehension is the issue. <laughs> I think it's the it's the it's the behavioral repertoires that compose comprehension that are the issue. And then when you teach those, just like when we taught children with autism to speak, we taught early repertoires and the speak speech emerged. It was easier than teaching them to sp- try and teach them to speak. I think comprehension is a complex repertoire that you should teach the the um, the smaller component repertoires that comprise that compose it first.
0: Just even listening to that, it, it almost puts out there that we need to be assessing the right skills from the beginning for every child individually is that you can't tackle it as just a reading comp program is that you really have to break down what are the skills, what are the abilities of the child's bringing into the equation. And so that I can know, what do I need to backfill? What, what of the behavioral cusps haven't been developed yet?
1: And if you start, you start by trying to teach the comprehension, like I do with older students, but if they don't get it within so many, you know, sessions or so many learning units, then I go back and assess what's missing.
2: One thing that's really simple is when you teach your kid, what is this? And he says, phone, right? OK, write phone. Draw a phone when you see the word phone. When I say phone, point to a picture of a phone so that all the responses, what does a phone sound like? All of those responses to the same stimulus need to be available. So there are many ways in which you can relate phone. So once you start to do that, and you say, OK, what does a phone do? A phone rings. What do you do with the phone I talk to? What do you do? I listen to the phone. So all of those relations need to be taught until when a kid has, has strong incidental bidirectional naming. that You could say, teach them, oh, this is a phone. They can write it. They have an emotional feeling about when a phone rings, what it means. They can see many different kinds of phones. All of those become present because of acquiring multiple responses to the same stimulus. On the other hand, a response can have many meanings. So Skinner, in his book, talks of the word fox and he talks about how it can be manned or attacked but now we know fox could be an automobile made by audi depends on the context and the context is the motivating condition not the operation fox it can be a fur on somebody's shoulder fox it can be an animal fox it could be in the guy in your department trying to stab you in the back Fox can be a rhyme with locks, right? So behavior is meaningless without the consequent and the antecedent. I think that that
0: piece to it and being able to evaluate that and to be able to to plan around it and treatment planning around those cusps become so important. But this is such a huge topic. And I know that you all have put in a lot of effort to, to illuminate and bring these discussions to the table through research. Dr. Page, you had mentioned that you had put out a book, um, but several publications, I'm sure, over time. Where can people access that? And what what is the book?
1: It's coming out this year, um, and it's called When Text Speaks, Learning to Read and Reading to Learn. Um, it's published by Sloan Publishing, and we um, are predicting that it will be out in the next few months. <laughs> um, it's taking you know, a books take a life of their own sometimes, so. Um, but the book is about applying a strategic science of teaching to reading. So how do you um, from begin early reading, students who are pre-readers, up through students who are reader writers, looking also at students who, when we have learning problems or reading challenges with them acquiring reading, Repertoires, um, how do you um, teach those and how do you assess them? And so um, the book is an edited book. Doug and I are the editors and um, lots of people have come together to make this book, put this book together who are um, experts in applying behavioral science of behavior to reading. And so that will come out this year. And then um, of course we each have our own sets of publications um, in this area and students who have dissertations. Oh, we also have a special journal issue coming out or I'm, I'm editing one um, with behavior and, science, behavior and social issues. Um, the deadline is May 1st, if anybody still wants to submit I don't know if this will be out before then, but it's on literacy and social justice contributions of the science of behavior to reading instruction. So it's about um, lots of different people in behavior analysis um, talking about their work and reading and particularly as it affects students who've been educationally marginalized. Um, and so, um, those are my two contributions to it.
0: Well, I think that uh, just having access to that for the community at large and, and the provider community to be able to digest and figure out how to put that into practice, it's invaluable. So I'll be I'll be waiting for the book to be released, but. Um, You also said that you might be speaking at some conferences on on panels about this. And uh, so I know that I will try and make sure that I'm I'm in attendance on those. And Doug, how about for yourself? Where can people find some of the information that you've put out there so that they have access to be able to continue to learn on their own from the research that you put out and figure out ways to make this part of their practice?
2: I think the verbal behavior book that Denise Ross and I, when she was Ross and that Ross page, uh, that we published uh, in 2008 is actually now translated in Spanish, Korean. It's gonna be out, it's out in Portuguese now. It's gonna be out in Chinese pretty soon. Uh, what okay. other language? Italian, and it's in Italian. That book set out the foundational cost that then led us to research the, you know, relating text to verbal behavior development. I'm also going to Brazil uh, next month uh, for the, and I'll be talking to parents and uh, practitioners and university people for about 10 days. And then I'm going to South Korea in July uh, also, uh, and I'll be talking about uh, the research and how that's worked in our schools. Um,
0: And then hopefully retirement gives you some free time to enjoy everything that that you've definitely earned over time. But I appreciate both of y'all coming on because these are topics that oftentimes unless we continue to talk about them, clinicians start to forget. the the true value of all of the the theories, the research, the application of the science in what we're doing. We get so stuck in the day-to-day. So I'm I'm very glad that we had this conversation today, and I hope that it continues to be able to push the community of, of providers out there to evaluate their own practices, making sure that they're looking at all of these key components to behavior change and addressing it appropriately So Denise, Doug, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I, I, Doug, I hope that everything goes great on your trips, but I look forward to the fact that you get to to start your retirement as well. And Denise, I will be at your presentation out in Denver at ABAI, so I'm excited to see that too.
1: Thank you, Jeff, for having us, we appreciate
0: it. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.